Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hello, it's Ben Baldanza here. Happy to welcome you to another episode of Airlines Confidential. I'm joined as always by my partner, Chris Chimes. Hey Ben, we're gonna be joined in a few minutes by a well-regarded airline economist and analyst, Bill Swellbar. But first, we've got some news to cover and we start with third quarter results here in the US, Delta always leading the way. And what a quarter they had, $695 million of income on record quarterly revenue of almost $14 billion. While it's far below the $1.5 billion in income the carry reported in Q3 2019, which is the best year-over-year comparison we really have, its outlook for business travel and airfares is staying pretty robust into the fourth quarter. So, Ben, get out your crayons and provide us some color here. Well, my crayons are out. It was a terrific quarter for Delta. They went out very bullishly. I saw Ed Bastian on TV, and he was very excited about the fact that strong demand in the summer has continued to carry through into the fall. Normally in this industry, there's a big drop-off in travel once you get to about the middle of August. And we've not seen that so much this year. Now, he did point out that Delta still isn't flying as many seats as they were at this point in 2019. So they have more to go in terms of capacity getting back. And the other thing that's true about their quarter is fares are significantly higher. So this is a trend, Chris, that we're seeing in hotels as well as now Delta, which is fares or room rates in the hotel case have gone up in the last year as labor shortages have happened and and the people who were traveling at one point had to travel. And this summer, fewer flights, but a lot of demand and things. And so the question is, how long can the travel industry, not just airlines, sort of support these higher fare levels before we'll see some sort of price elasticity effect and people saying, I can't afford this as much and I'm not going to travel as much. So a lot of positive news in Delta's announcement, but it concerns me some that a lot of their strength was on the basis of significantly higher fare points. And whether that can stay, I'm just not sure. Are you seeing similar things in the cruise business, Chris? Well, 
The cruise industry, the demand is strong. Uh, right now, pricing isn't what uh, everyone wants it to be. Um, some some lines saying that they've got better uh, pricing power than others. But there is a bit of softening with regard to fears, but we're also heading into kind of the back end of the year. And, and as we kind of launch the purchasing season, we call wave at the start of the year, it'll be interesting to see what kind of pricing is, is there. But I agree with you on the Delta assessment. Um, you know, what struck me was, again, the pricing power. Their international uh, traffic was very strong. They pointed that out. I did notice that Ed Bastian said they're not going to do a stock buyback and they got a lot of debt to pay down. So I, maybe they were listening to us or listening to me. I thought that was a good thing. And it was also a, a good thing in the context of the ongoing uh, organizational efforts of the flight attendants at Delta, which they don't want to have happen. You know, lots of interesting tidbits. But to that point with regard to pricing power, I was just kind of looking more broadly at some of the news of the past week, and it seems like, you know, across a variety of channels, airline executives are really not having anything to do with any talk about a recession. I mean, Ed proclaimed that airlines are counter-cyclical in his post-earnings conversations and media appearances. Uh, United's rumored to be nearing a deal for 100-plus new wide-body aircraft it's not announced as we record this right now, but it could be by the time this program airs or maybe in the context of their their own third quarter earnings results announcements. Reflecting the strong demand for premium travel, a number of international carriers are making major investments in seats at the front of the cabin, including recent announcements by Lufthansa and American. Even Ryanair was quoted last week as saying they expect airfares to continue to rise. So I'm going to pull on that thread a bit and ask you, you know, is the sky really the limit? Are people too bullish about the prospects having sat in a rather depressed state of the industry for the past two years? Well, this is an industry, Chris, as you know, that as soon as things start to look really good, all of a sudden, maybe it doesn't look so good anymore, right? So my concern that I already mentioned once was just the demand is strong, but the prices are really high. And can the consumer continue to support this? Now, when Ed Bastian went on TV, he talked about the premium leisure customer, someone willing to pay more to sit in a nicer seat or as part of their broader travel, stay in a nicer hotel and such, yet still traveling on leisure and presumably paying for the trip themselves. That type of travel probably will continue, but is a relatively small piece of the total leisure traveler. And so this is an industry that historically has always shown or suffered from, depending on your view, very strong price elasticity, meaning when fares get higher, many fewer people travel. And we're not seeing that right now. That could be this idea of revenge travel that people have been talking about, that this year, even going into this fall, people are taking trips because they couldn't take them the last few years. But that seems to me that as people are paying more for everything, maybe the travel this year is working, 
But at some point, that elasticity is going to bite the industry again. I was surprised when Michael O'Leary at Ryanair said they likely wouldn't be offering their 10 euro fares for a while. And that's one thing they've been known for in a long time. So does that become an 11 euro fare or a 20 euro fare? We're going to have to see. So to your specific question, Chris, I don't think the sky is the limit. I don't think fares can just go to any level, just like hotel rates can't go to any level without some sort of effect on what that means. That said, the industry is bullish around its fleet orders, around its view of demand. And that's all really encouraging. A couple years since the pandemic started, it's good to hear those kind of talks. Airlines reporting profitability, talking about growth, United announcing a big European expansion, adding a number of new cities. They actually quoted, which kind of surprised me, that they will serve more cities in Europe than all other U.S. airlines combined. I was really surprised at that because we used to have a joke in the industry that if an airport had a rotating beacon, Delta flew there. (laughs) And And so I like the bullishness we're seeing. But if all of that bullishness is built on a platform of the industry can just charge higher fares to everyone forever, my concern is that could be a house of cards. Yeah, I mean, as we head into the end of the year, we got to be watching for other signs like, you know, what's holiday spending going to be like? You know, certainly food prices continue to go up. So you know, at what point does spending slow down in different categories? And then when does it roll over into travel? Because like you said, at some level, this isn't sustainable. As I'm shopping for hotel rooms right now for a couple of trips, uh, I continue to be amazed in this kind of shoulder season, even, even in the kind of the dead period between Thanksgiving and Christmas, some of the prices out there. So I realize there's a lot of debt to pay back from... COVID and travel sectors have to try to recover and recoup as much cash and capital as they can. But at some point, consumers are going to start to resist this, I think. Well, this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And Chris, you know that load planning for any operation is complex and time-consuming, but Aerodata can help. Aerodata's load planning solutions computerize and automate the entire load planning process, streamlining workloads, optimizing load distribution, enabling airlines to maximize their payloads, and ultimately eliminating potential delays by flagging flights that require extra attention. 
The solutions also integrate with reservation systems, cargo vendors, baggage scanning, container operations, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and connect with your Aerodata team. Well, Chris, as you know, I'm going to continue to stay on the sidelines on this one, but I want to ask if you're still following the DOJ litigation against the American JetBlue Alliance. Uh, you know what, Ben? I am kind of sort of, like I said a couple of weeks ago, if only because we're doing this podcast and I feel like I need to pay attention to it, but it's really not a compelling case on either side of the equation from the bits and pieces I read. I stand by my previous comments about it portraying all parties on unflattering terms. You know, previously we had airline executives like American not realizing that they had slots at JFK after the American US Airways merger and some other kinds of misquotes and misspoken statements by JetBlue executives as well. Now we have DOJ's economic analysis that was put before the court about the impact of the alliance in New York being shown to be deficient because it only included LaGuardia and JFK data and it ignored Newark, which I'm not sure how you analyze uh, the state of the New York metropolitan air service landscape without including Newark. And then last week, U.S. District Judge Leah Sorokin asked the DOJ lawyers for a list of the Northeast Alliance's key provisions to make sure he understood them. Now, I don't think that's because he wasn't paying attention. I think it's probably more likely that the DOJ has not been able to present a crisp, on-point, and coherent case. And so the judge wants to make sure he's fact-checking against what he's hearing in court. Um, AA and JetBlue moved to dismiss the case last week, which the judge denied, as he probably should have. So it looks like this case will go through the end of October, at least as now the airlines will put on their rebuttals. So for those who are watching, keep watching. I keep waiting for some aha moment, but I'm really, I couldn't even begin to predict where this is going. But usually when it's a lukewarm case and not a lot of punches are landed, it's not good for the plaintiff. And so I got to wonder how the DOJ is going to wind up in this matter. Well, the only thing I'll say to that, Chris, is that I would love to hear Scott Kirby's view as to whether Newark was not New York <laughs> or maybe Gordon Bethune's. When I worked for Gordon back in the 1990s, at one point he set a directive that he didn't want any pictures of Newark Airport that weren't taken from the vantage point of looking into New York City and at the time seeing the World Trade Center buildings because he wanted to cement in people's minds that Newark was a New York airport and was basically sitting in New York. And now to hear that whether it's what's going to show up when you search for NYC or anything that Newark in some sorts might not be considered a New York airport is just amazing to me. 
Well, we'll be right back with our chat with Bill Swellbar, and I'm pretty sure that our friends at Seabury Securities will be very interested in what he has to say. Seabury posts a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. AeroData is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and we're both honored and excited to have with us today William Swellbar, who goes by Bill to many of us, who's the Chief Industry Analyst for the Swellbar Zong Consultancy and worked for many years at MIT. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Glad to be here. Well, why don't you start and tell us about your background and what you're up to today? Sure, sure. So needless to say, I'm not the typical story about the guy getting into this space, right? Um, I was uh, a broke student after two years at the University of Minnesota. I had a cousin who flew for TWA who told me that it would be easy to finish college being a flight attendant. So I got hired by North Central Airlines in 1979. I entered class as a North Central flight attendant. I graduated class as a Republic flight attendant. And I was based in Detroit. I carried 18 hours at the Eastern Michigan University, uh, flying illegal overnights, doing my homework in the basement of the Sault Ste. Marie Airport. And at the time, like so many airlines right after deregulation, you know, companies were constantly asking their work groups for, for concessions. Somehow I got elected president of my local union Uh, We were doing concession negotiations every nine months or so. And after numerous concessionary bargaining happenings, the five unions at Republic, we decided that enough was enough of this nine-month stuff. And so as a 24-year-old, along with presidents from the other four unions, uh, we set off to do a leveraged buyout. So as 24 years old, we, I was walking Wall Street trying to borrow $400 million to buy the company because we could pay the loan back with concessions. We didn't get the deal done, but I was sitting in Fred Bradley's office at Citibank when Stephen Wolf walked in and became the CEO of Republic. And ultimately, we were able to get the employees of Republic um, a series of uh, common stock warrants and a liquidating preferred that every employee was paid back dollar for dollar when Northwest bought the company in 1986. It's that event that was the basis for me getting into this business. I then started my MBA at Michigan State, but was offered a job to come to Washington and set up the first real economic and finance research at the AFA in Washington. I finished my MBA at, at GW. I was holding down two jobs and going to school. I was While I was at AFA, I did a lot of work moonlighting for Airline Economics, Inc. Many of you may remember that. It was a firm that was established by George James and Lee Howard, the former economist at ATA, after the sunset of the Civil Aeronautics Board. 
So since that time, since 1985, I was involved in nearly every distressed labor negotiations, all the way up through the first round of talks in the United bankruptcy. That was a brutal time. The negotiations were tough. Of course, it was the financial advisor's fault that that's why it is that United was in such trouble. So when I left Elk Grove Village at about 6 a.m. one morning when bargaining was done, I knew that I was probably fired because I, I did say to them that the work was not done, that there was going to have to be something done in the pension area because United was not going to get exit capital with that kind of pension liability. I don't care what side of the table you're on. Nobody wanted to do any of that, but that was a reality at the time. And then I kind of did my own thing for a while. I was asked to take on a much more formal role with MIT in 2005, and I, I joined the faculty as a research engineer at that time. I was then put on the board at Hawaiian Airlines, and I still sit on that board. And then last year, McKinsey made me an external advisor to their transportation and infrastructure practice. Along the way, I lost a job for the first time in 40 years, which I guess everybody in the airline industry needs to have happen once. And I established uh, the Swobarzong Consultancy. We call ourselves an economic analysis and research firm. You know, and we really started it just because just too many yes people out there telling clients what they want to hear. Albert Zong and I have been together for 25 years. He's been my right hand. There's a truth in numbers, we believe, and my view is one of the best answers I can give to a client is to say no, and that's probably one of the reasons why I work really hard making as little bit of money as I can, and that's where I am. So, Bill, with all that as a background, you know, you're both well-known and well-regarded for your research across a number of parts of the industry. Let's talk specifically about some of your low-cost carrier research and why you don't think they're going to inherit the earth. <laughs> We're spending a lot of time looking at the ULCC sector right now, but it's really funny that you guys point out the uh, uh, low-cost carriers won't inherit the earth because that was one of the very first pieces I did when I was at MIT in 2002. And kind of, you know, if we kind of go back to that time, you know, the, the first, you know, we saw Southwest taking share, you know, from the, uh, from the network carriers through at least the end of the Great Recession. And now it's the ULCCs that have been winning share against Southwest. The ability to win share, you know, can certainly be tied, correlated closely to the late, a cost advantage that that carrier has relative to another sector. We look at Southwest today, it certainly doesn't enjoy the same cost advantage that it did back at that point in time. And while uh, labor hates the term, I mean, the industry very much competed on, on labor costs at that point in time. The premise of won't inherit the earth was based a lot on, on the cost side of, of, of the equation. And if we think about that, you know, at the time the bankrupt the the network carriers were going through their bankruptcy, the labor cuts were never imagined at that at that level. And so it was my view when I did it that there was going to be cost convergence uh, with Southwest and some of the other ULCCs, and they weren't going to have that same advantage. And therefore, the rapidity of the share grab up to 
that point was going to begin to slow um, and kind of level off a little bit. And I think that's, that's kind of what's, what's happened. It's leveled off at around, you know, a third of the industry, depending on how it is you want to measure it. But, you know, we're at an interesting time now, and I, our cost conversation is probably going to be a heck of a lot different than it was it was back then. But, you know, I, I think the rub right now, and I don't know if I would use the same title today, you know, it seems as labor costs, particularly going higher and higher, you know, labor is winning and creating a cost convergence at, a, at much higher pay rates than I would have ever imagined. And my two concerns, and I think the government should pay some attention to this, is when you see carriers paying regional pilots the same rates as the ULCCs, flying airplanes that are 60 to 70% smaller, you know, the competition is less about labor cost, but rather how many skilled workers I might have that can fuel growth at the expense of the lower cost sector. So, you know, when I'm looking at it, I think, you know, I think a big question mark for me is, are the ULCCs potentially slowly being priced out of of the market and priced out of the ability to offer those low fares? I think it's going to be a story that's going to be interesting to watch. Fascinating, Bill. You've also used the term, as some others have, called revenge demand. Tell us about this idea, (laughs) and are we done with that, or are we going to see it into this fall and even into next year? Yeah. Um, Great question. So a couple of months ago, I think February or so, um, Albert and I said, neither one of us really understood fully what revenge demand was, so somebody's got to do the first draft of, of an analysis, and we did. And we just kind of wanted to understand what it was. And I, I, I think, I mean, I don't think, I know the, the catalyst for us was because I speak a lot in the airport world. And many airports were seeing service levels and commensurate traffic during the pandemic that exceeded any expectations one might have had previously for that particular airport or market it serves. So, for example, suddenly there were 45 more daily departures in Fort Myers um, post-pandemic than there were pre-pandemic. Fort Myers didn't grow by 45 times. So I think the a fair question was, is that traffic level, is that traffic gain sustainable over the long term? You know, there were a lot of yes people in that in the airport space that I was hearing that, you know, say, of course, the business is going to continue to stay. And you might as well just extrapolate a new forecast from an inflated base. And all of us on this call know that's never a good a good start. So based on our work, uh, we do believe that there there is still some froth to work off. But Ben, you're right. I think, yes, um, much of that burned off last summer. Um, my guess is a slowdown in the economy is, is probably going to burn some of it too, um, if you will. And I, I, I just think it's important that a lot of airports realize that while they, they had a terrific growth spurt during the pandemic, not everybody is going to be that big tomorrow. And you know, the other interesting piece 
is that we thought that markets with these unsustainable traffic levels would largely be the domain of the ULCC sector. And our analysis said that that wasn't the case. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's out there. There was a lot of it. I think a lot of it has burned itself off. There's still some of it hanging out there. And I think some of that some of that revenge demand hangs around uh, metro areas that were much slower to open than some other areas. So, Bill, I have to ask a quick follow-up to that. <laughs> Do you think that because of that, summer 2023 will be smaller than 2022? I do not believe that the numbers will be smaller. I just think what it is we're continuing to see is some rebalancing of where the traffic is. So if there was some revenge um, in a Florida market, and that may be the Florida airport may be smaller in 2023 than it was in 2022. But I, the overall, the overall industry, absent any economic harm that might be done here, um, is going to continue to continue to grow. Bill, I want to go back to what uh, you said a few minutes ago about pilot wages. As the regional carriers are raising their pilot rates, yeah, and many would argue that they should have done so a long time ago, but as these things are happening in the marketplace, yeah, how can small communities sustain travel with uh, costs for those airlines going up like that? Wow, Chris. I mean, it's you know this, this is this is a sector that um, is near and dear to my heart. Has been for a long, long time. Um, but we 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 just simply have to agree um, that when regional pilot wages are raised to ULCC levels, it makes it easy to begin to engrave the tombstone on the fifty seat service by the network carriers. Um, the economics were upside down before these latest raises. And many people are saying, you know, well, yes, they, they never should have been $20,000. Okay, we all agree to that. But we also know that prior to these, you know, they were increased to $50,000. And there were retention bonuses that were being paid. And so what it is that we've just seen, um, the, the, this crazy... Um, this crazy sudden increase at across the regionals. I think we can safely say the communities that were receiving less service uh, are receiving less service, have been receiving less service, whether it be competitive service, seeing the number of hubs served from from a market, and this is just this is just going to continue. We've said that 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 small communities relying on the small jet for network carrier access cannot compete. Uh, with the highway, when a larger airport with a longer menu of service and choice is available within a reasonable driving distance. Um, I think this is particularly true for business travelers. If it, and, and now the average departure to a respective hub by markets relying on the 50-seat airplane are now less than two per day. And it's just at two departures a day, a business traveler cannot be reaccommodated in the event of a service disruption. Therefore, that traveler has been on the highway, uh, will continue to be on the highway, um, not only to find better choice, but probably a better fare and to feel like he or she can get reaccommodated in the event of, of, a, of a disruption. And so, you know, while we're here in this, this small market space, 
as a country, as, a, as an industry. We need, in my view, we need to redefine essential. <laughs> and we know it exists in essential air service. But the legislation that created the program was passed 15 years before the interstate system was completed. You know, instead of, you know, spending nearly $200 million on um, EAS service markets that are within 120 miles of a, of a, of a, of a larger airport, um, shouldn't maybe today we, we redefine as essential as the government putting that money in play to train pilots, mechanics, dispatchers, air traffic controllers. Let's not forget, you know, this industry was responsible for 5% of the nation's GDP pre-pandemic. Um, and so uh, a, a small investment and in training so that there will be a level playing field out there for all sectors of the industry would seem to make sense to me, but I've been banging on that soapbox for a while. That's compelling, Bill, for sure. I want to take advantage of your rich background and your research mentality, and let's talk about some questions that we don't always get to on this show. But the first one would be, how could or should industry regulators deal, do you think, with concentration by hub? Yeah. And what about in greatly constrained facilities like New York and L.A.? Look, Ben, you, you've been on the other side of this, this for a long time. And I think we know that the business at the core it really is, it's a real estate business and real estate's necessary for any airline to offer as many flights as it possibly can, you know, but real estate's finite as, as you pointed out in your question. And right now I'm kind of less concerned about hub concentration than maybe I would have been, but I am concerned that a lot of the facilities at critical origin and destination points, like you mentioned, and whether it be the LA basin, whether it be New York, uh, is there real estate for, you know, competition to mount any sort of a real, a real type of operation? You know, airlines are being really shrewd right now. They're investing hundreds of millions of dollars in these critical markets. They have contracts now that will allow them to control that real estate probably for another 30 years. So I, I, I think about it for a carrier like a spirit. I mean, you know that carrier all too well. That is not afraid of flying into these larger markets in order to maximize, you know, its efficiency. But that carrier, in order to maximize that efficiency, probably needs to be able to, to operate 50 to 70 daily operations in order to achieve some necessary scale. And you and I and Chris flying 50 to 75 operations at some of these large origin and destination airports is just not going to happen given the limit on, on real estate. Going back to the hub thing, um, from the very early stages of the pandemic, Albert and I have long thought that hubs are going to be smaller uh, going forward. And, you know, some of them will and some of them won't. Certainly DFW and, and Charlotte and Miami um, are not. But, you know, you take a look at, at those, those hubs in the middle of the country, 
um, highly reliant on on the small jet and regional service, the Minneapolis's, um, the Detroit's. You know, look how slow it's been to see Chicago come back um, in terms of departures. And now you know, the network carriers are being pretty clever about talking about no longer really talking about recovery in terms of departures. But of course, you know, ASMs are the same. Well, to an airport, an ASM means absolutely nothing. Airports are care about departures and throughput. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more concerned about getting access to the big markets where the innovative uh, lower fare carriers can mount at least a meaningful competitive base. We'll have more with our conversation with Bill Swellbar in just a moment, but I want to thank Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies that are transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing the industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. So let's switch gears a bit. We talk a lot about business travel. What's your take on the return of business travel and how business travel might change? Yeah, you guys have talked a lot about this. But yeah, is, you know, will it return as it was? No. And, you know, I think now, you know, many in the business are starting to call it leisure, right? A uh, combination of business and leisure um, that are happening on the, uh, on, on the same trip. During, during the pandemic, we started to pay a lot of attention on the data on the number of new business applications in the U.S. And it was not uncommon during that time to see 1.6 million new business applications every month. Now, some of those are not going to get off the ground. Some are not going to thrive, but some will. Um, and they're not going to have travel budgets like Morgan Stanley, BCG, and, or Microsoft. You know, um, they're gonna, the product that they're going to seek from, from the airlines, um, is, they may be very happy with the coach configuration, um, that kind of thing. So, you know, it could be that over the longer haul, yeah, the numbers, the traffic numbers um, catch up, but it's kind of hard to imagine um, that we're going to see the disproportionate revenue from that sector that we've we've come to know, or at least in one man's view, mine. You know, uh, quietly, but not so quietly, I, I think it's important for all of us to pay some attention as to what's going on in the private aircraft space. There are a lot of dollars that are finding their ways to FBOs these days. And now we even see some see some corporations buying hotels and turning it into their own retreat, um, you know, for, for, their, for their corporate functions. So, you know, no matter what, I keep coming back to cost on this stuff. And, you know, I, I, I just read an article the other day, I forget where, but said that travel costs are up about 50% over the last 18 months. All, all three of us on this podcast know, you know, travel budgets are the first to get cut and the last to be made whole in a downturn. That's the short term, you know, but and at some point, just, just like airline costs, costs are going to matter again. And uh, right now, I think probably many corporations are continuing to watch that budget. And so, yeah, I, I think it's a slow return. And I think 
I, I think Ben has talked about, you know, maybe 80%. I think that's a good number. Well, thanks for that, Bill. And we'll have to see whether the industry can best that 80%. But as of now, I'm sticking to that too. Let's go back to the big hubs one more time. Yep. And you talked about wage rates at the regionals, putting small city service at risk. My view has always been that if you live in a small city, you don't want to only go to other small cities. You want to go to the big place too, right? Right. If you live in Kansas City, which is not that small, you don't want to just go to Pittsburgh and Greensboro. You want to go to Dallas. You want to go to Chicago. You want to go to Atlanta, New York, and L.A. So – do you think one way to ensure access to small places is by giving more access at bigger places? Now you take us right back to the real estate question, don't you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, for the smallest communities out there, certainly it's been the hub and spoke system, right? I mean, that's how it is that they work. That's uh, that's what's kept as many many airports served as, as there's been over the last 40 years, for sure. But again, kind of come back to, you know, at two to three frequencies a day, I just don't know that they can really compete. And, you know, we talked about, um, I do believe that we're at a point now where a lot of airports and the smaller communities that they serve are going to need to be educating their local populations that we're not going to get those two to three flights a day. We're probably going to need to start thinking about ULCC service two or three times a week. That's an enormous change, but I really do believe that the ULCC sector is going to do some very good things for some smaller airports out there. Now uh, you talk about a Kansas city and a Greensboro and a Pittsburgh, that's kind of a sweet spot. Um, because those are going to be markets that don't have to rely on on the regional, the smaller uh, gauge regional airplane. They're going to be able to support mainline service in ways that they haven't in the past. So I, I see it. I see an industry here that we're really going to truly begin, you know, to bifurcate the haves and the have-nots. Well, Bill, given your expertise in the industry, we're not going to let you go without talking about consolidation. Uh, broadly, where do you think consolidation might be headed in kind of the next five to 10 years? And specifically, any thoughts on the JetBlue Spirit deal? Yeah. Yeah, Chris. You know, as, as we've grown up, I mean, I don't know that consolidation ever felt like it was going to be done. But again, I'm going to be a little different. I know that's surprising for those who know me. But I'm not so sure that consolidation going forward is going to be about network benefits. If there's going to be consolidation, it's going to be human capital that's going to be the catalyst this time. That probably means that one plus one is going to be less than two. But if the largest carriers are going to be able to accumulate skilled workers, more skilled workers than, than, than the competitor, Consolidation, in my view now, just means that there's going to be more market concentration in the hands of a few. Um, you know, and for me, the new C word is going to be concentration. 
and it's going to be concentration because I have human capital and you don't. I can grow and you can't. I've spent an awful lot of my career supporting the network carriers and mergers among the network carriers because of the leverage that it, it, it's accretive to the, to the smaller markets on the network. But I, I just feel that the network benefit is less today. It will be less going forward. Now, JetBlue Spirit. I did write, and I I still commit to, I didn't want to see JetBlue paint Spirit blue. I wanted to see a more innovative approach if they were going to join hands and more of an IAG approach. I see the two carriers as serving different customer bases. And I know the CEO of JetBlue absolutely believes I would be wrong for saying that. But I just believe both companies operating separately and figuring out just what the customer base is going to want going forward. Staying separate um, is going to allow us to understand where this industry is ultimately headed in terms of what's the product that's going to be sought. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, if it's all about people, Chris, it's hard to get excited because as I, again, the equation just simply says one plus one will be less than two. I closed my ears for most of that bill. And you know why? <laughs> why is that? So, bad? I know why. I mean, that's okay. <laughs> no. Well, so let's, Put on your prognosticator's hat here yeah. and tell us, how do you think the industry is going to change in the next 10 years in substantive ways? Yeah. I think the story for the next 10 years is going to be Southwest Airlines. You think back, this is the hardest management job of any airline in the industry, in my view. They still have a balance sheet but they don't have the same cost advantage that they've had and how it is that that airline really dictated change, necessary change in the industry. You know, undoubtedly, they've been the disruptor for the last 40 years. You know, it was the deregulators that made them the model, right? But going forward, I think, what will their story be? I'm going to quote somebody that I know, Ben and Chris, you guys both know very well and no longer with us. Um, I think the smartest airline economist ever, Mike Levine. Mike Levine in 1992 wrote, and how prescient is this? Size confers advantages and disadvantages. Networks can be an effective way to combine flows and economize on marketing costs, but they come with vulnerabilities to labor operational, and political problems. LCCs can be successful, but they face major challenges in growth. A large LCC tends to be more vulnerable to labor cost pressures and must also compromise its commitment to point-to-point service to grow past the limits that route density places on those airlines. If those words do not scream Southwest, I don't know who, what they scream, but because they have been so important in shaping this industry, I think their influence going forward is going to be less and there's going to be somebody that steps up and becomes more the disruptor. 
Well, big thoughts from Bill Swellbar. You know, you're never short on opinions and they're always based in data, Bill. So that's all the more impressive. Anything else you want to share with us with regard to kind of research in the works or things that you're interested in getting smarter about and making us yeah. smarter about? You know, Chris, on the on, on your, your last podcast, you made reference to, I'm going to say it differently than you did, but you were talking about why has there been no kind of coalition form to come forward to address, you know, the pilot issue, I just what's going on in the industry. And what I'm going to say to you and Ben is watch my space. You know, it's going to be a continuation for us going forward and new research. We're just going to continue to watch the industry, see how the changes in the industry are going to have an impact on the various stakeholders down and along the, the supply chain. I have a deep fear. Um, the government is putting forth policies that are going to have significant unintended consequences. The national aviation system still is governed by archaic regulatory structures made increasingly difficult by recent policy initiatives that are simply not recognizing a system in transformation. And that's what's happening. And so it just seems that rather than the government wanting to work to maximize economic generation, maximizing the number of airports, maintaining some commercial air service, maximizing the opportunities for airlines to grow, maximizing consumer benefits uh, beyond what legacy incumbent carriers can do, the U.S. government seems to be working to undermine the ULCC sector's away, ability to grow and innovate and be a maximizer of those issues. And I I think a message for us going forward is definitely going to be poked at the administration and the simple three-word term, do no harm. There's just a need for government to adjust to this pivot by the traditional air service providers. It's imperative to ensure that a maximum number of local airports survive, a maximum level of competition is maintained, uh, for the consumers of the commercial aviation product. If we're not going to accept that a radical change is afoot, cost operator going to continue to go up. And when you put today's input costs on top of uh, ill-informed policy initiatives, you know, at some point, you know, low fares just become less and less possible to provide. And so it just it just strikes me that maybe really where this thing's going is the government is helping the industry, you know, labor and the large carriers to price out um, the lower cost sector of the business. I can't do anything without poking a little bit at Alpa and I'm going to. I have very dear friends, <laughs> Randy Babbitt and, and Dwayne Worth, um, who were great presidents of Alpa. But ALPA being the only union out there that will not publicly acknowledge that a pilot shortage exists, has wanted to be out of the small community air service business for as long as I've been in the business. That way they won't have to negotiate scope clause um, uh, uh, relaxations and anything involving that going forward. You know, ALPA rues the day uh, that in the early 70s, I think it was Eastern, they gave Eastern the ability to uh, engage in in a regional relationship in South Florida. So, you know, going forward, uh, it, the regional sector is going to be a shadow of itself. 
current pay rates will continue to be a cause of dampened competition, I fear. And as a result, Alpa gets a twofer. The consumer gets screwed. Well, shadows or foreshadows of things to come for Mr. Swellbar and his expertise. I want a finder's fee if there's a coalition uh, being formed and you're getting a job. So. <laughs> I will, you, you will be, the, you're kind of the first to know anyway. <laughs> well, Bill, this has been great. Uh, we appreciate your taking time out to uh, chat with us. And I know our listeners are going to enjoy this. So uh, thanks again. Hey, Chris, thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much, Bill. It's great to have someone with your kind of background and strong opinions. And what we like about this show is to bring on all kinds of ideas and then let the listeners tell us what they loved and hated. (laughs) Hey, and I hope that you guys will share some of that with me, particularly the stuff they hated. Of course. And, uh, you know, some of those are going to be at alpa.com, right? Well, I mean, (laughs) look, Ben, I haven't gotten a Christmas card for a long, long time. Well, this has been great, Bill. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential and thanks to Bill for joining us. Time now to take some listener questions. Please keep your questions coming via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit your comment or question. Chris, I'm going to toss this first question over to you because I know you've done some work in the cybersecurity space. It's from Maxim in New Jersey. He sent along a recent notice that he received from American Airlines about a data breach incident that potentially compromised passenger information with a pretty basic question. How can airlines protect consumer information better? Do you have this answer, Chris? I don't know if I have the silver bullet answer, but um, having worked several data incidents when I was at Sabre and subsequently at at uh, Carnival, and I think when I was at Orbitz, we had one as well. I think, in general, the travel sector does a very good job of securing passenger and employee data. Both both sets of data are of interest to the bad guys. The note that he sent along was kind of a standard garden variety consumer notification that is, that is required now when there's an incident. I did notice that American used the word, we've discovered a data breach, and our mantra was always never use the word breach, but there was a security incident or something. But, you know, I think they have to be diligent because there are so many transactions in the industry using credit card data, and you've got passport information and ID information that's of more interest to the bad guys than if you're swiping your card at Home Depot or wherever else where it's just a credit card uh, data uh, incident. So hackers are looking for personal data and 
the travel sector is ripe with that because of, again, the passport and ID information that's often included in a passenger record or a customer profile. But I don't think there's a, a travel industry company and certainly airlines that don't take this seriously. They just happen so often now, you know, I think, Ben, probably you're like me. We've gotten so many of these, I don't even read them anymore. I don't sign up for the free credit reports because I already have them on my on my own profile. It, it's just, unfortunately, a way of doing business. But we also saw, you know, last week where a number of U.S. airports were the target of some incidents from what we think are Russian Russian hackers. So um, there are other ways to disrupt commerce that don't involve stealing customer or employee information. And I think that's just unfortunately the way the world is now. That's a good answer. Better than one I could give for sure. And like you, when I get a notice like this, I usually sort of go to my online banking account, see if my bank is suggesting anything, but I don't go as far as saying, cancel this credit card, issue me a new one or things like that, unless I'm sort of told by the bank to do that. Correct. When I speak to students or when I speak to public relations organizations and professional groups and things, I often kind of talk about, you know, I ask the audience, how many of you work in healthcare? And a few people raise their hand. And I'm like, how many people work in cybersecurity? And a few people raise their hand. And I kind of respond, if you work in public relations now, we all work in healthcare. After the last two years, we all work in some level of public health in, in the context of talking to our employees or talking to our customers about public health matters, right? And the same thing with cybersecurity. If you don't think of yourself as working in cybersecurity at some level, uh, that's kind of a dead end. I think all companies are technology companies now, and all companies have to be prepared to talk to their customers and employees about cybersecurity. That's just the reality. It's not some far off thing that only applies to certain kinds of companies. It, a mom and pop you know, store, a nonprofit, all kinds of organizations are impacted by cybersecurity now, and you have to be, you have to be uh, diligent and vigilant. Ben, our friend Peter from Connecticut is asking about our thoughts on Alaska Airlines' new voluntary rebooking system. Asking specifically, do you think this opens up a business where airline seats are traded as a commodity? Essentially, non-refundable tickets become like options in this marketplace. So, Ben, maybe you can give a high-level summary and then your thoughts about this new technology. You know, I think this is interesting. Thanks for bringing it up, Peter. This idea that Alaska is doing has been floating around the industry for quite a while but Alaska is the first one that I know of actually implementing it. The idea is essentially to fix yield management mistakes. What I mean by that is the normal revenue management or yield management process tries to predict demand at every price level, hold seats for people who would pay more, get smarter as the flight books because they get real sales data about what demand is and such. But sometimes airlines find themselves in the situation where closer to 
to departure, maybe they don't have enough seats for the demand that is now still showing up. So if they can free up some seats at that point, they could replace maybe a ticket they sold for $100 with somebody willing to pay $300 for that flight. So what Alaska's product does is it allows them to reach out to customers when they're in this situation and offer them some compensation to move to another flight. So maybe you bought a cheap fare on Alaska on a 2 p.m. flight, you may get a notice from Alaska that says, hey, if you're willing to move to the four o'clock flight, here's what we can do for you. And maybe it's cash, maybe it's frequent fire points, maybe it's credit for future flights, but it's voluntary. You can just say, no, I want to keep the seat that I have. So nobody's taking the seat from you, but they're offering you compensation for you to move so that they can then resell that seat for more. It's an interesting idea. If the revenue management system worked perfectly, you wouldn't need this, but revenue management systems never work perfectly and they become less reliable since the pandemic because the world is still learning what post-pandemic demand is. And so revenue management systems are still catching up with this. Now, to Peter's idea that this would evolve into trading airline seats as a commodity, I don't think we're moving in that direction. There's still a lot of security issues around airlines, When you buy a ticket in your name, you can't just give it to someone else. You can't change the name on that ticket without going through the airline and potentially have that being repriced. So I think moving from this very simple idea of maybe I can free up some seats when I know I have more higher fare paying demand up front to a true sort of speculative marketplace. I think that's a real long stretch. I got nothing to add. You've covered it all. I mean, the only thing I would say is sometimes I think airlines have been too boxed in by their rules. I realize they've got to have guidelines and policies and ticketing procedures and the like, but these are ultimately man-made rules and they can be undone and changed. And as you point out, during the pandemic, a lot of rules were broken and a lot of rules were rewritten. And this is the opportunity to kind of be creative. Let's see if other carriers emulate what Alaska's doing. I think that'll be the proof in the pudding with regard to whether it's working or not. Well, Ben, as we finish up and get ready to say goodbye, it's shout out time. And I want to give a shout out to Canada Jetlines. After almost 10 years in the making and many delays, The new Leisure Ultra Low Cost Carrier got their first flight up in the air in late September with its inaugural service from Toronto to Calgary. It's got one Airbus 320 and it looks to add five aircraft per year through 2025, so to have 15 by the end of 2025. And guess what? They've applied to start flying to Florida. I know that's shocking, but good luck to Canada Jetlines. I know you all have worked hard to get this uh, airline up in the air. 
I wish them luck too, Chris. This is a good shout out. I somehow got on their email list early in their process. So would often chuckle when I'd get an email that says, Canada Jetlines does this new thing when many of those new things were really very tiny or minor, you know, just just sign this new deal or just carpeted the stairs in their headquarters <laughs> or something like that. But it's good to see them flying. My shout out, Chris, goes to Malaga, Spain. Malaga is one of the cities that United's adding with nonstop service out of Newark. And Malaga is such a wonderful city. It's in a great part of Spain. And trying these new leisure cities is always a risk. You don't really know whether there's going to be enough demand and whether people will pay enough to go there. But having a nonstop from the U.S. into Malaga versus flying into Madrid and getting there some other way or connecting through another European hub, I think is great for people from the U.S. who want to see that part of Spain or people from Malaga who want to visit New York and maybe come to the U.S. So I really hope this service works, but I'm excited for nonstop service to Malaga. So am I. That's the place I've always wanted to go. So we're going to say goodbye. Thanks for the download and for listening to us. And hopefully I'll be back here again next week. And thanks again to Bill Swalbar for some great insights. We'll see you all next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.